0: Uh, This last week I was with a team down at the Planned Parenthood in Salt Lake City and we were talking with people as they were on their way in to the clinic or even just walking by. There was one young man who had dropped his girlfriend off at the clinic there and he stuck around and uh, chatted with us for a bit. Had a conversation with him that lasted for about an hour and over the course of that time he, he shared with me that he believed in God. And not only that he believed in God but he believed in Jesus And he said that, yeah, I would call myself a Christian. So I said, well, what are you doing here? Like, do you not know what's going on inside this building right now? He proceeded then to explain his thinking about God. He said, you you know, the way that I think about God and my faith is that all of us are kind of like pixels on a great big TV screen. And all of us are required to kind of uh, build out one collective entity, and, and God is that great big collective, all of us combined. I said, well, that's interesting, but that's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible tells us that God is altogether different than his creation. So so even if there was some sense in which each of us are like a pixel on a screen, we're individual and yet we make up a collective entity of humanity, God is separate. He is distinct from that collective entity. And because of that, he is above and beyond. He has a higher authority over it. We do a catechism time with my kids every night where I just ask them questions. We do Bible story and we sing together and then I just ask them some questions I've written down for them. And when I ask them is, Who is God? Say, they say they repeat in sing song fashion, God is the creator and sustainer of all things. I say, What is God like? He is limitless, unchangeable, and perfect. I said, Is there anyone or anything like God? No. He is altogether different than his creation. This is a beautiful truth. And only when we start with that in mind can we begin to think rightly about what is just and unjust. For the person who does not acknowledge Jesus as our true King, authoritative outside of us, not just one of the pixels, but ruling and reigning over all. Only then can we have a meaningful discussion about what constitutes right governing. Because there is no objective standard by which a person can judge kings, rulers, forms of government, or even more fundamentally, what constitutes right and wrong, without seeing an objective lawgiver at the top of all of it. As believers, you and I have God's word, and we consult his teaching to know how we should relate to government. And so we're going to continue to do that today as we sought to do that from the beginning of this sermon series. If you have your Bible with you today, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 6. Last week, we answered the question what constitutes legitimate civil authority, or what makes a king? I argued that the biblical design is that the king must be both chosen by God and recognized by the people. But there remains the question of when we are permitted by God to disobey even a legitimate civil authority. Both when can we resist, and how should we resist? So if you want to know the basic flow for the next two weeks, this is what we're going to talk about. Today, we're going to answer the question, when are we permitted to resist our government? And next week, which is critical, is for us to see how is it that we may honor God even as we disobey our civil government. We've been circling these questions for the past couple of weeks, and it's time for us to answer them directly. And so I want to do that by reading through this famous Old Testament story. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. In order to get the full context, I'm going to read all of Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 28. That's the whole chapter out loud. I'm going to pause very briefly for some commentary, and then we will ask some questions about when it is okay to disobey civil authorities. I will read all of it out loud. If you're not, we'll open your Bibles, but I'm going to put just a couple of the verses up there for us to scrutinize even more specifically. Let's pray, and then I'll begin reading through that passage. Father, we love you. We love your word. As always, Lord, I ask for you to keep me from error in my thinking as I read through these words. Help for us to apply them rightly. Help for us to have a submissive, loving heart to you. Help us to acknowledge that you are the one true lawgiver. You are the only just, righteous, and perfect authority that ever has or ever will live. And help us to submit to that, even this very moment, as we open your word and read through this story that is so well known. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, quick background on Daniel chapter 6 to make sure we're all on the same page. This story takes place during a period of time in Israel's history called the Babylonian exile. Now, long before the Israelites settled in the promised land, God had warned them that if they, like the Canaanites before them, were to forsake him and turn to false gods, they would be overthrown by an invading army. And eventually, after centuries of God sending prophets to remind them of that warning, the apostasy of the Israelites had become so great that God sent in the Assyrian army, followed by the Babylonian army, to decimate the nation of Israel and to take the survivors into captivity. They were marched across the desert and forced into exile in a foreign land. Now, when the king of Babylon, that's Nebuchadnezzar, had taken the people captive... He selected from among them a small handful of young Hebrew men in order to train them in the ways of Babylonian culture and government and eventually to make them advisors in his court. You can read all about this in Daniel chapter 1 if you'd like, where we see God's hand on four of these young men who rise to prominence in the kingdom. The most notable of these men was Daniel. He had become an especially trusted magi, an advisor, not only to Nebuchadnezzar, but also to his successors, which brings us up to King Darius, the beginning of this passage today. Daniel chapter 6, I'll start reading in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So here we have this, a system of government, both with higher and lesser officials. We have the satraps who were just governors, and they were to re- respond to the officials who were above them, three of which were ruling, and the king was at the very top of this pyramid. Daniel has risen to prominence under yet another administration due to God's hand on his life. But not everyone's so excited about Daniel's success, as we'll see, picking up in verse four. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So these verses make it clear that Daniel never commits any wrong against these other three men, or even against the kingdom. In fact, it even says that no error or fault was found in him. He was a law-abiding citizen. These wicked officials were just plain jealous. There was no good reason for them to want to usurp his authority. Some Christians, you think about this as an extension think that if we just lie low, if we just keep our head down, if we just do our job, don't pick any fights, then we can be at peace with everyone. That is just not the case. 2 Timothy 3:12 even says, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Daniel's a great example of this. The beginning of this series I showed you Romans chapter 12 that tells believers to try to be at peace with all those around you, but that we should expect hostility to be returned even when we try to be at peace. Even though Daniel has done nothing wrong, he becomes a target to his co-workers. We should expect a similar treatment. They say here, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God, that's the only way they're going to get Daniel. Daniel. They had to find something in connection with the law of his God because they know that that is his highest authority. They know that Daniel is more loyal and committed to that than anything else. They knew that because he was a devout follower of his God, the laws of whom evidently were not at odds with Medio persian law, they had to introduce a law that would make Daniel in violation of his king's commands. That was the only way they were going to get him. They had to invent something because he was able to be in compliance with both at the same time. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So the wicked officials come up with a plan to usurp Daniel, and they try to force him to not pray to his God. You'll note that it was was about don't make a petition. For how long? 30 days. They even had an isolated period of time. But I want you to notice here that even this new order did not require that any people, to include Daniel, must actively worship the king. That was not the requirement. In other words, Daniel could have avoided any legal issues while still obeying the Ten Commandments. And this is a very significant point in this text, and one that we're going to have to circle back around to later. And then verse 10. I want you to see this with me, so I'll put it up on the screen. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So with full knowledge of this new irreversible law, Daniel goes back to his house and prays. And I want you to notice five things that this Verse here tells us about Daniel's prayer. First, his windows faced Jerusalem. I just want to give you the the significance of that statement that his windows faced Jerusalem, faced west from Babylon. Long before the days of Daniel, when Solomon was king of Israel, he dedicated the newly built temple in Jerusalem with a prayer recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8. In that prayer, Solomon said that if God's people were to ever rebel against him so terrifically, that they would be taken captive into a foreign land, here is what they should do. And I'm going to pick up in the middle of his prayer in 1 Kings eight forty-eight through 50. Solomon said, If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, and pray to you, God, toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. So Daniel, most likely, was praying toward Jerusalem with this in mind, a prayer of thanksgiving for God's hand of blessing, and a prayer of petition in repentance that he would be returned to his land. First thing then, he would The windows faced Jerusalem, the direction of Daniel's prayer. The second thing this verse tells us is that he knelt down. He got down on his knees. He assumed a posture of submission in prayer. Number three, he did this more than once and more than daily, but three times daily. This was a regular pattern for Daniel that he continued even after the order was given. The fourth point that I want to make is actually implied in the text and in this story, And that fourth point is that he almost certainly prayed out loud. This whole charade would not have worked out for the wicked officials if they could not witness him clearly praying to God rather than to the king. There must have been something observable about that prayer that made them know that it was not to the king. And fifth, it was as he had done previously. All this means that his prayers could be publicly observed by witnesses. And very likely they had been for some time. And obviously that's what brought about this plan in the first place. Before we move on from this verse, I want you to see an important point. This was a regular practice for Daniel. His prayers were genuine. They were not merely motivated from a heart of rebellion. So just quickly kind of think by way of application how that might relate to us for the person who never went to church regularly before COVID, but started going just because the government can't tell me what to do, that's not what we're going to see here in Daniel. If you can find any approval for that, you won't find that in Daniel. But at the same time, Daniel continues his practice, listen to this, with total and absolute disregard for the law. He does not alter his prayer practice one tiny bit as a result of this law. He doesn't even budge. And even if you look at the first opening line, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house and did the prayer. We're going to circle back around to this thought a little later as well. Let's pick it up back in verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king! Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. So they had set the trap, and now they aim to collect. Now technically, they're not lying here. They may be overplaying their hand a bit to say that he makes no care, no concern for you whatsoever. But certainly Daniel has paid no attention to the civil order. So there actually is truth in what they're saying. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Pausing on this verse for a moment, you might remember that last week, I made the point that according to God's word, a king, no matter how powerful, may never be above the law. But he himself is under the law. So here we see yet another example of that amongst the media Persians, don't we? The king may not change a previously ratified law, no matter how much he wants to. And these lesser magistrates are reminding him of this. They are holding him accountable. You might be thinking this, King Darius, but you may not change that law. Moving on to verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. The king seems here to have genuine heartfelt concern for Daniel. Don't you get that throughout this story? He doesn't just say whatever, it's just a guy and goes back to sleep. He actually seems like he he wants to, he longs for there to be a way to fix this problem. He was caught in a trap in his own folly, in his own arrogance, but he can't reverse it, even for a friend. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So God rescues Daniel from these beasts. Stamp of approval on the civil disobedience of Daniel. And Daniel's disobedience was in no way genuinely harmful to his king. Although he is a condemned criminal according to civil law, the law was unjust, and therefore he was blameless before God, and more more says it says, not just God, but he was blameless before his king. I have done you no harm. Although I have disobeyed your law, I have not done harm to you. I am blameless, O king. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Yeah, it's a bit gory. This is the part of the story that never quite makes it onto the mural of the Sunday school wall. But that king was Furious. At what these men had done, that they had caught him in this trap that he couldn't get out of out of his own folly. And this is how it concludes in verses 25 to 28. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied, multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is a famous Bible story you may be familiar with. It models civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. That's a term we may use when we're talking about the way a person may rightly resist Civil authorities. We're going to talk about how to do that in upcoming uh, next week. But civil disobedience is what's at play here. When a person is permitted by God to disobey a civil authority. So now, let's ask some questions that we started asking in previous weeks. When are we permitted to disobey our civil authorities? I want to give you four answers to that question. I'm going to start with the ones that probably are the most obvious and work our way into the ones that might seem least obvious. So that's the question. When are we permitted to disobey civil authorities? First, when the authority is illegitimate. Now, I commented on this last week, that we are not acquired to obey illegitimate authorities. I used the example of the mobster or the ganglord, mugger perhaps even, even if he claims the title of civil authority, I'm in charge around here, we are not obligated to submit to him. So our response to illegitimate authority is that we are under no biblical obligation to acquiesce to false leaders, none. So do not pay the mob boss to comply with someone like this may provide him with social currency, sometimes literal currency, that will likely be spent on the abuse of others. If you have the means to resist illegitimate authority, then by all means do so. So brothers, if you find yourself confronted by a mugger trying to steal your wallet, and you think you can take him, then do us all a favor and take him down. Because that may be the very most loving thing that you may do for your neighbor. When the authority is illegitimate, do not comply. We are under no obligation to comply. Now, I'm bringing this up now and in this order because I know that there could be a question that's asked that's very important for us. And the question is this. When might a legitimate authority become an illegitimate one? If we are not bound to submit to an illegitimate authority, then is it possible for a legitimate authority to become delegitimized, invalidated? Can a president do something so awful that we are no longer bound to obey his authority? The short answer is that not until he has been lawfully replaced by another legitimate authority. That's the short answer. I want you to consider today's text with me. Throughout Daniel 6, Darius was never invalidated as a legitimate ruler over his people. Even after enacting a blasphemous ordinance of the highest degree, Daniel still refers to him as his rightful king. You remember when he cries out from in the lion's den, he says, "O king, live forever. That's the same line that was used by the magistrates earlier. That's a a reference to to acknowledging his authority. It's long live the king. And he even says that he has not done anything to harm Darius' king. Daniel's charge is not, you're not my king. You've lost that authority when you demanded worship. So here's the principle. Bad leadership, sinful behavior, even wicked legislation do not necessarily invalidate a civil ruler's authority. There's more, lots of examples of this in Bible history. Let me give you another one that might be closer to home for us. Think of King David, a man after God's own heart, the rightful, anointed king of God, the one in whose line will come the Messiah, the son of David, rightful ruler for all all eternity. David was certainly the rightful, God-anointed king of Israel, And he was so even after the scandal with Bathsheba, which included both adultery and murder, which are criminal activities for the record. He had to answer to God for his sins. God even sent Nathan, the prophet, who's an Old Testament officer in the church. That's the ecclesiastical sphere, right? To prophetically admonish the king for his sin. But the populace, the people, we were obligated to obey David's rule both before and after the Bathsheba event. His rule was not invalidated even by criminal activity. So you and I might want to believe that we are not obligated to obey corrupt governors, but that's just not what we get from the Bible. Anarchy is never approved in the Bible. So in other words, we don't ever go, ah, he's lost his authority, everyone do what is right in your own eyes. The only way that is biblically prescribed for a community of citizens to invalidate a legitimate ruler is for them to replace him with another ruler according to the ways that people make rulers that we talked about last week. Chosen by God, recognized by the people. All these sermons are helpful to see in order. Last week I used the example of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam was the ruler over all the land, but the people gathered corporately together and in one voice said, we reject you, here's the new king. And they recognized the new one and he was their rightful God-given authority. This means that there may be legitimate rulers whom we are permitted to disobey. In other words, we don't only disobey because that ruler is illegitimate. He may be legitimate and still we disobey. You need... A category for this in your mind. Just because a ruler is legitimate, that does not obligate us to obey everything he says. Last week I said we don't get on board with that hashtag not my president junk. Why? Because he is my president, even if I must civilly disobey in certain areas. Yes, he's my president, but I may be compelled to not comply in certain areas. In fact, try this one on. It is possible that there could come a point at which a Christian is disobeying his ruler more often than obeying him, all the while still acknowledging him as king. And that's not inconsistent. That is biblically consistent. But if an authority is not legitimate, that is, he is not both chosen by God and recognized by the collective citizenry, then we are not obligated to obey him. We could vote in our country for a new ruler, We could impeach one that's in there. But we are to obey legitimate authorities, not illegitimate authorities. So number two, when are we permitted to disobey our civil authorities? Second, when the ruler contradicts God. When a ruler contradicts God. This is the super obvious and clear point of Daniel chapter six, that God provides for and approves Daniel's civil disobedience. Why? Because the king approved of a command that was contrary to what God says. Last week, I even gave you a list of examples of this. All throughout the Bible, we see a bunch of places where people had to dishonor and disobey the king in order to follow and obey God. And there's a historical line that Christians have used for for centuries that I, I think is helpful for us on this account. We are permitted to disobey a legitimate ruler Whenever he commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. Whenever he commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. That's when we are absolutely permitted to disobey. In fact, in those situations, we are actually required by God to disobey our civil authority. And Daniel 6 is an excellent and clear example of this. Moving on. Number three, when are we permitted to disobey our civil authorities? Yet again, when the ruler breaks the law of the land. When the ruler breaks his own law. This is different than when a ruler breaks God's law. We already covered that one. In that event, of course, we may follow the example of Daniel and many others and obey God rather than men. But we are permitted to disobey the ruler when he disobeys a law that is not even given to us in Scripture. In other words, it's not given either explicitly or necessarily inferred because the ruler is bound to obey the law of his own land. Give me an example of this. If you just happen to be friends with the governor, and he were to call you someday and be like, hey, want to do lunch? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, why don't you grab some food? I'm on a tight schedule, so just don't worry about stoplights or speed limits. Just get here as fast as you want. I'm the governor. You can blow through all of them. Even though stoplights and even those speed limits are not prescribed in God's word, they are appropriate in our land, and He may not usurp those laws. In other words, even if He tells you to break them, He has no authority to permit you to break them. Remember, the law is higher than the king. This is one place that in our text today, the king actually got it right. King Darius got it right in this part in the story. This is is when he knew. He cannot just go, well, I never liked that law anyway, and change the law. He can't do that. God intervened because of the situation, but the king may not. Additionally, we may hold leaders accountable to obeying the law of the land. And for the record, this is why you have got to know what your laws are. We as American Christians have got to view our constitution rightly. Rightly. In my judgment, some Christians view the Constitution too highly, others view it too lowly. Some have even seemed to elevate the law of our land above the law of God. And so say things like this. They might see this play out with a homosexual marriage, so-called. They say things like, well, it's not technically illegal according to our Constitution, so it's lawful. No, it's not. God says it's entirely unlawful. but others have gone too far the other way and they belittle the Constitution by saying that a believer should not appeal at all to our laws. I've heard this argument used this year regarding current social distancing, uh, uh, gathering limitations, even mask mandates. People say, well, don't argue the Constitution. So what what the Constitution says the governor told us? What? It is incumbent upon Christians in every nation to understand the law of their land. Let me illustrate this for you in, in this illustration. Imagine for a moment a county sheriff who has been duly elected into his position of authority and lives within the county he serves. He lives on a moderately busy street that has a speed limit of 35 miles per hour. One day he begins to feel that the speed limit, that the, that the speed limit is too fast for his street. And so he goes into his garage and he makes a stop sign out of some old plywood, spray paint, and a broom handle and he places it on the street outside his home. The citizens, as they drive by, see the unapproved sign, and although they know it is not official, they slow their pace to 15 miles per hour in a good effort to respect their neighbor's desire for a safer street. But this is not good enough for the sheriff. So he gets into his government-issued squad car, and he waits in his driveway until the next driver puts along at 15 miles per hour disregarding the sheriff's hastily made stop sign he pulls out lights on pulls the driver over to the side of the road and gives him a ticket for blowing the stop sign question should the driver pay someone's got a right impulse you're right no but but he's a genuine authority is he not a legitimate authority absolutely is it not within the general purview of authorities to impose and enact laws, even ones that could help the community. Yes, but our form of government does not permit a sheriff to make a law on his own. He is not permitted to do so. In fact, it would not be what is better for your community for you to pay him and encourage him to continue in lawless behavior. In order for you and I to know how we ought to act in that situation, it is critical for us to understand the form of government that we have. Who is able to make laws? Who is told to enforce them? How are they to be made? In what way? A health official in our government may not legislate. Do you know this? A judge in our country may not make a law. It is critical that we do understand this. And we have other Bible examples of people resisting government, stepping out of their lane in this kind of way. In Acts chapter 16, this is a famous story of Paul and his ministry partner, Silas, who go to Philippi. And while they're there, they're preaching the gospel, that they see this slave girl who is uh, oppressed by a demon. She's got a possessed demon in her that makes it so that she can tell fortunes to people. And their wicked uh, masters are using her for gain. Eventually, Paul heals her of this, this ailment by, by casting the demon out of her. And the owners are so furious that she's healed from this that they seize Paul and Silas, they drag them before the magistrates. They actually bring them before their governors. And the governors, the magistrates there, demand that their clothes be stripped off and they be beaten with rods. Then they take these men, they put them into prison, and this is that famous story that Paul and Silas are in prison, and about midnight, they're, they're singing praises and hymns to God. That's, that's how Christians go to jail, for the record. Just singing praises to God. Well, an earthquake rattles the prison, and the jailer thinks that everyone's gotten away. And he goes to try to kill himself. Paul steps in, no, don't do this. We're still here. The Philippian jailer gets converted. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He gets converted, baptized, his family, his household right then and there. The next morning, the magistrates come, and they say, just release that Paul and Silas character. And they find out, Paul's a Roman citizen. Well, just, just get rid of him quietly. But Paul knows the law. Paul doesn't go, oh, yes, magistrate. Paul knows the law, and he knows that they broke their law. And this is what he says in Acts sixteen thirty-seven. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And he has them, march them out of the city, Showing submission to law. Paul knew that it was right for him to hold the magistrates publicly accountable for their unlawful deed. He knew the law of the land, that it was illegal for those rulers to have beaten without trial, and so he did not leave quietly. This is a perfectly appropriate and God honoring way for a Christian to respond when a government acts outside of its own laws. And who knows how many more Christians came to Philippi after Paul and how many were saved from similar injustice because Paul pushed back against that unlawful practice. When a ruler breaks the law of the land, we may be permitted to disobey him. And lastly, we are permitted to disobey civil authorities when the ruler operates beyond his jurisdiction. Beyond his jurisdiction. This technically is different than him breaking the law. This is him doing things that are not necessarily specified by the law. This is when a ruler attempts to legislate in an area that is not lawful for him to do so. He's not been given authority there, so don't try to make laws there. I've been making this case since our first week in Romans 13, that God has determined boundaries, limits on a ruler's authority. And any time that he steps outside of his jurisdiction, we are not obligated to obey him. But what if the law or ordinance is not specifically contrary to God's word for the record? This is where I've seen the greatest amount of discussion from Christians in twenty twenty regarding submission to government. Well it was not really harming anything, why not just submit? A few weeks ago, I used the example of a totally arbitrary law that a king may enforce. There's nothing religiously connected to it. There's nothing necessarily wicked. His favorite color is blue, and so he makes all of us wear blue on Monday. That's the command. You all wear blue on Mondays. From sunup to sundown, you wear blue on Mondays. Is there any word in sacred scripture that says we shouldn't wear blue? No. Would you be in sin to wear blue? No. Could you do it? You could. Are you obligated? Absolutely not. You are not obligated to obey a command given outside of his jurisdiction. Even if it feels basically harmless, even if it doesn't significantly infringe on church, family life, even if it's just amoral, we can see this kind of principle play out in Daniel's story. Does God's word command us to pray out loud, as it seems Daniel did? No. Does God's word command us to pray in an open window so all the public can see? No. Does it command that we pray on, on our knees so people can observe our posture? No. In fact, what does Jesus say in Matthew 6? Pray in your closet. He goes, that's where you should go. And Jesus is clearly competing against the Pharisaical idea that I want to pray so everybody sees me. That's really what he's saying. But the point is, you can absolutely be in full submission to the Word of God and honoring Him. Do you know what Daniel would have had to do if he just wanted to be in compliance with the government? Close the window, dude. It's 30 days. It's 30 days. You could have just closed the window and all would have been okay. But Daniel knew that's wrong. You may not intervene in right Christian worship. That's the way we would say it today. They don't have authority. Nobody can ever tell you how you ought to pray but God himself. That's it. And Daniel knew this. In fact... Daniel could have been in full compliance with the laws of his land and still obeyed the law of God, but he refused to budge. And it was not wrong for him to do it, it was not rebellious for him to do it. And we, just like Daniel, are not obligated to obey the command of any authority who goes beyond his jurisdiction. I used this example a couple weeks ago. The elders at this church made the decision to not impose a mandate for Mass. We don't have the authority to do that, it's outside of our jurisdiction. We couldn't do it even if we personally wanted to. It would be wrong of us. It is wrong for the government to step outside of its jurisdiction and to enforce laws that are not given to them by God. He may not impose on our worship and our homes. I've heard people ask, but what if the law is intended for our good? I mean, they're trying. That's the intent. The intent is for our good, we suppose. We suppose. I would argue that the intent here is irrelevant regarding obligation. Whether or not a ruler intends to impose on our God-given freedoms to worship him or to manage our homes according to his word is inconsequential. He can have all the right intentions and it still be wrong. He may not impose in those areas. And if we were to comply even with orders that unintentionally impose on our God-given freedoms, we may be, not certainly, we may be contributing to future abuses of power. And that's a strategic reasoning as to why you might not want to follow those orders. I made this, I made that claim back in March at our church that my concern about the kinds of mandates we were seeing, and that was back during the 15 days to slow, slow the spread. You remember that? 15 days to slow the spread. It's laughable now. But even back then, we knew there's something not right here. If we, if we just comply in the areas that are not within the jurisdiction of the government, we may be contributing to future injustices. The king will go, oh, they just listened. Maybe, maybe we can do that again. And it may be strategically appropriate for us to disobey in those areas. I think that Christians have done a terrible job of this in the past couple of generations, terrible job. You know that there are principled and unprincipled reasons to disobey the government. Principled and unprincipled reasons. Unprincipled? I just want to speed. I just like, I like going fast. That's that's not principled. It's just I want to get there faster. And so many people today, it seems, are okay to show their children that methodologies. Watch me as I disobey the government and all these things without any principle. We should teach our children principled reasons to disobey. You know, that's one of the reasons it's so awkward for us as Christians today to know how to civilly disobey. Nobody modeled this for us. I don't know if that's you. I don't know of any good models in this last generation who said, this is how you civilly Disobey. We need to show our children what it looks like, even in times of peace, where the lines of government are drawn so that we can do it rightly without the need for rebellion to be stoked in our hearts for us to get there. I think that Christians long ago should have pushed back on evolution being taught to our children in schools as the authoritative and only way that we got here. Godless origins. When prayer was removed from the public sphere, when abortion was made legal, when no-fault divorce became sanctioned, when so-called homosexual marriage was celebrated. Next week, we're going to talk about how it is that Christians may and should resist authorities and these kinds of injustices. But for far too long, Christians have just said, well, that's the law of the land. So as long as we can still privately worship, as long as it doesn't impose too much, just submit, I don't think that that's been good for us. Nowhere in sacred scripture can we find teaching that obligates Christians to obey laws that are beyond a ruler's God-given scope of authority. Nowhere, ever. I've been asking my Christian friends to find me one verse in all of sacred scripture that approves of impositions on the home or worship. There's not one. You are not obligated to obey, to, to, to obey civil authorities when they operate beyond their jurisdiction. Now, there's a concern that Christians might have when we walk through these kinds of things. Rich, doesn't that stoke rebellion in our hearts? It may. It may if we don't add the critical starting point to this, that God is an absolute authority. There is an authority that has jurisdiction over all the parts of our lives, behind every closed door, even in our minds, when we're alone in our car, when we're at work, at school, at play, no matter where you are, there is an authority over every single facet of your life. And his name is Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He has unlimited authority, unlimited jurisdiction. He alone can command what we do with every category of life. And he is a perfect judge Acknowledging this is what keeps us from becoming rebels of heart. We are are to be in submission to him every minute of every day. You know, the previous generation, one thing that I do think has gone really well by those brothers and sisters who came before us is that they fought the good fight in the lordship salvation versus easy believism battle. If you're from the previous generation, you might be familiar with that. This is is where Christians in the, the second half of the 20th century started saying, Well, you don't really need Jesus to manage all the parts of your life. Just get saved, believe in him, and then you can go do basically whatever you want. So don't judge anybody's actions. Don't judge anybody's activity. Don't tell them what's right or wrong. Don't talk about sin or hell or judgment or justice. If you believe in Jesus, you're good. You're good. But many dedicated believers said, that's not what the Bible says. If you're a Christian, you submit to Jesus as Lord. That means he makes the law over every single part and parcel of your life. He tells you how to shop, how to vacation, how to pay taxes, how to raise your kids, how to go to work, how to live and die. He's the one who's in authority, and we are to submit to him every day. And when we fall, we are to, we are to repent. We are to turn to him again and say, Lord, thank you for your saving grace. Because apart from you, there is no salvation for me. If you're not a believer this morning, and you're wondering, how is it that Christians can talk like this? It's because we have the word of God as our guide, and that word tells us that all of us are sinners. All of us are rebels of heart, and we have rebelled against our greatest and highest authority. We have committed treason of the highest order against the good God of this universe, and we are deserving of justice, of judgment to be poured out upon us. But God, in his good mercy, has sent his son Jesus to live perfectly, a perfect life, following all the law, completely and perfectly. And he went to the cross to die, although he was innocent. And you and I live, although we are not. And Jesus says, I'll trade. I'll take your death, and you take my life. And we get that through belief in Jesus. Believe in Jesus and be saved. As Christians, we are not the rebels. We are the submissive ones. That in every day of our lives, we would say, God, you are our Lord. You tell us what to do and we must obey. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I know as we walk through this passage that's uh, known to us in many ways as a famous story of the Old Testament, sometimes we need to be re-familiarized with even those texts to see the kinds of things that we need to apply right now. Lord, I I pray that you'd help us to see these things rightly. Help us to know when it is appropriate for us to disobey civil authorities. Help for us to know how we may rightly disobey civil authorities so that we don't trip up into rebellion. Lord, it could be so easy for us to fall into that sin, that that prideful, arrogant sin, of just not wanting to have anybody over us in authority. Father, rescue us from that folly by first establishing that you are our king. Help us to, to bring every area of our life under your authority, your right kingship. Help us to honor you as King Jesus, who is king over the house who is king over the streets, over my car, over the bedroom, over the office, over the government, over every single part of this world, and help us to live so ferociously submissive to you that even on the days that we must, when we are required to be in civil disobedience to authorities, that we can do it with a kind of peace in our hearts. Lord, this is a difficult time for us, and we may be practicing for a more difficult time ahead Lord, that seems likely, but Father, prepare us well to be the kinds of peoples that show the world our love and submission to King Jesus over everything, that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.